Hey guys, just a heads up. We had some technical issues in our first interview with Trey Stevens. So he was kind to do a second one with us in which both we found encouraging and insightful that we've pulled from for this episode. So with that in mind, please forgive us if you notice some disparities in audio and sound quality. There are a lot of ways that a person can be unusual and contrarian. I think my faith is one of those things for me. It makes me very different than other people in the room when we're having conversations about ethics in an investing context or when we're talking about privacy and civil liberties in the Palantir context. I mean, all of these opinions that I hold are colored by my faith. It's Grace, and you're listening to bonus content on Trey Stevens, who is now a partner at Founders Fund, a premier venture capital fund, and the chairman of Andoral Industries, a U.S. defense tech company. And the story of how Trey got to where he is is incredible. You might want to check out the previous episode to know more. But in this bonus content, we get into some more interesting topics of why Trey made his career transitions, to how he got into Palantir as one of its early employees, to the deeper things about his faith and how it was refined in college and is really what sets him apart from others at work. And while you might remember the crazy story of how he got into Georgetown and how he didn't waste any time to be in the best position to get a job, to work for the intelligence community right out of college, there was one other important thing that happened when he was in college that we didn't get into. And that was meeting his future wife, Michelle. And we're going to kick it off with this story. This would have been 2004. So it's January of my sophomore year. So I not only work for the president's office, I also work for hotels as a front desk agent to make cash to, to support my university experience. There was a regular guest at the hotel that checked in almost every Sunday night, like clockwork. And over time, I got to know him and He's a huge football fan. I'm a huge football fan. He would sit in the lobby and watch Sunday night football. I would plop down on the couch and talk to this guy and debate with him about which teams were going to make it in the NFL or whatever. He was from Philadelphia. The Eagles were in the playoffs. And he called me from his room and I come up to the room. My whole family's here. We're hanging out. We've got some pizza and wings. So during my break, I go up and I knock on the door. Lo and behold, his oldest daughter is literally my year at Georgetown. He knew that I was that year at Georgetown, but he had never mentioned to me that he had a daughter that was my year. And that night, she and I established that we had a mutual friend who actually lived right next door to. So that night I went back and asked the guy like, you know, what do you think about this Michelle DeCoco gal? She seems pretty cool. And he was like, not your type. Don't even bother. It's not worth it. So that was the, the illustrious start to <laughs> my now 12 year marriage was a mutual friend telling us that we had nothing in common and that it would never work. You've known Michelle for a few years already when you got this opportunity at Palantir. So how did she take that? She's always been the type of person that has pushed me to take risks. She's far more risk-minded than I am in a lot of ways. And so I think that, you know, she was probably pretty tired of me coming home every day and being like, I just hate this. Like, it is just killing me inside. And you left in 2008. That was when things were starting to go downhill in America. Or I don't know if you felt that yet with the recession happening at that time. The recession didn't really feel real to me. 
I think as someone that was very new to the marketplace that didn't own a home and was working for the government, which is like the most recession proof industry, to me, it was just like the needs of the national security mission are no different today than they were in 2007. Maybe they've like changed in certain ways, but like the, the mission is still as critical as it was before. And Palantir was growing rapidly. How did you get that connection to, to start? Did you end up approaching someone from the company? That I've been exposed to the company. I met up with one of the engineers weirdly at a conference and had expressed some of my frustrations for how I was kind of banging the table. And he handed me his business card and he said, let's have coffee, let's talk. And ended up just kind of like hanging out with some of the people on the team. And, you know, they were just getting their feet under them with early work that they had established in the defense world, kind of proactively helped push me out the door of government life and bring me into the startup. Timing was definitely weird. So April 2008 is when I got married. And then I joined the company in July. It was like this thing that I had, like, this is going to be our life, Michelle. Three months later, it was like, just kidding. Now I work for a company based in Palo Alto. We have these things called stock options. I don't actually know what they are. I don't really know how they work. Um, and it's like, wow, you know, suddenly this is not at all what we thought it was going to be. <laughs> but, you know, your transition into this company wasn't such a huge difference. It was mainly going from the public to the private sector. But essentially, you're doing a lot of the same type of work because Business Insider calls it the secretive data analytics startup, which counts the U.S. government as a client. But how accurate would you say that was when you joined? You know, the funny thing is, is that Certainly, I wasn't trying to be secretive about it, and I don't think anyone else in leadership was trying to be secretive about it. I think it is a really fun narrative for the media to pull on because it's like you, if you just assume that anything that you don't understand is secretive, then like, gosh, I mean, there, there are a lot of things in my life that I could put that label on. There's nothing super spooky about what we were doing. I think we were very straightforward in saying like we take data and we enable people to search and interact with that data in super efficient ways. And the initial missions that made a lot of sense for the intelligence community, the 9-11 commission report had come out when the company was founded. And basically the 9-11 commission report said like, actually the intelligence community had all the data that they needed. They just had it in silos in different places and no one connected the dots. And so the original idea for the company is like, how do we do a better job computationally empowering our talented humans throughout the intelligence community to connect the dots so that these things don't happen again. And so this was like the kind of the tech answer to that. but. We, we certainly were never trying to be secretive. And as a startup, was, would you say you made a lot more working for the private sector than how much you were making for the government? Well, there's two answers to that. From like a pure salary basis, like it, it's more, but it's not, it wasn't at that point in my life, the, you know, the difference between like taking a job or not taking a job. I probably could have gone and worked you know, on Wall Street out of college and made a lot more. So that wasn't the thing. It was really like about the mission that was, that was important. I think this is like a story that the government likes to tell. They like to say like, we can't compete with the private sector because they just pay people better. And it's like, no, like the mission is super compelling. You could like recruit and retain people if you just made the culture more acceptable to what people want to experience. That said, the second part of this is, as I said before, stock options. As a government person, I had never been exposed to this idea, but basically stock options are equity in the company. So it's like the right to buy equity in the company at the, that you entered at. So for me, entering as one of the first employees, that, that was incredibly, incredibly low. And it's high risk because like if the company doesn't work, then your equity is not worth anything. 
So your compensation is then just your salary. But if the company does work, then actually your salary becomes almost meaningless. And Palantir worked really well. <laughs> Another thing about stock options is that you actually felt you had ownership of this company. You know, one of the reasons the work culture was what it was at Palantir is that they pull your network inward. So it's like they take your family and integrate them and they make your friends your colleagues. So you're either like recruiting your smartest friends to come work there or you're becoming close friends with the people that already work there. And what this translated to is that it looks like a perk. It's like, we're going to give you haircuts at the office. We're going to give you massages at the office. We're going to provide breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the office. We're going to do your dry cleaning. And uh, as you know, a middle 20s person, I was like, wow, this is great. They're just going to do all this stuff. But what that means is that you show up before breakfast, your wife comes and joins you for dinner. And then at like 8.30, you like drag your lifeless body back to bed to repeat it again the next day. And so literally there are books about this where it's like, what is the economic value of providing dinner at a startup? It turns out that it's eking out additional hours of labor out of the workforce and it totally works. Okay, so now I want to get into that time when you said you and Michelle had your first baby when you were at Palantir. What was it like for you to think about your work and how sustainable the 80 plus hours a week of work would be for your family? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different cuts that you could take on this question. There's like a question around fatherhood and coming to terms with who I wanted to be as a father. Do I want to be an absent father or do I want to be there and be part of their life and their development? Because you had a father that wasn't your biological one that was there for you. That's right. Yeah. Did that have an impact? I, I think so. I mean, there's this really cheesy, I think it's Brad Paisley song that says, I hope that I'll at least be half the dad that you didn't have to be. That kind of stuck with me where it's like, look, this stranger came in and like raised me as his own blood. The least that I could probably do is be there for my own children. So I think that definitely impacted me. Also because my dad passed away six months before our first child was born. And so there's like that component, the fatherhood component. There's also just the honestly like physical biological component, which is that having a newborn in your house is very hard. <laughs> you know, there was no question that I was going to be going to work exhausted and kind of struggle through the day and recognizing that something I had to give was a frequent conversation that my wife and I had during that time period. There were questions about what my role was going to be at Palantir. Does that scale up or does that scale back? Because you were a senior forward deployed engineer. And so it wasn't very clear what you would do after. Well, you know, one of the tricky things about Palantir is that like 800 people have the same title, this forward deployed engineer title, but it's not descriptive of their role at all. For the time period that we're talking about, my functional role at the company was essentially like running sales, like an internal sales team. So I had revenue responsibilities and there were a lot of questions about what that would look like going forward as, as the company scaled. But historically, we had avoided having commission sales, but there were questions about, will it help us to scale this up? Will it help us to be way more active on government affairs with lobbying on Capitol Hill? And there was definitely a chance that I could throw myself into that fully and build myself another two or three full-time jobs working concurrently with what I was currently doing. Okay, so now when you were at Palantir, you started to experience this startup culture and you had described how they'd tactically give you perks that would make you work more. And then you'd be able to recruit your friends. So it was a tight knit circle of friends. So can you tell me about the relationships you had with your friends there in terms of being able to talk to them about the deeper things like faith? 
you know, I, I have always been terrible at hiding my religious convictions. <laughs> so, you know, my closest friends at Palantir all knew where I stood and whether we were having like joking conversations where they were ribbing me a little bit for my views or they were in, trying to engage in a serious conversation about them, you know, it came up often. I, I think it has always been a pretty frequent topic of conversation with the people that I care most about. And a lot of those people happen to be coworkers of mine at Palantir. And a lot of those coworkers of mine at Palantir are now with me at Anduril as well. So I think that uh, obviously you would have to ask my closest friends who are not Christian, kind of what the perspective is directly to get a real answer. But I think seeing the level of passion and intensity that I bring to my faith, it's, it's consistent with my personality for the way that I bring myself into the workplace as well. There's not a world in which they would ever discourage me for being passionate about my religious convictions. And I think that it's part of what makes me who I am. Who I am is someone that my friends obviously care about deeply. And so I, I think there's a tremendous amount of respect there. Now I want to go into more questions that would help me cover more on the faith element in your life. Sure. Perfect. You grew up with a grandfather who was a pastor of your church and your parents were strong Christians. You went on international missions, but... When would you say you started to question the things in your faith and how did you deal with it? Yeah, during high school, uh, we had a really active youth group at my church. And part of that youth group experience was sitting in kind of a loft in the church building. And we would go through really complex issues. So we would talk about revelation. How do we interpret revelation? It was a Southern Baptist church. So we talked about alcohol. We talked about sexual ethics. We talked about all these things that I think maybe the church historically has not done a great job of raising kids up in this kind of critical period of their time to have good answers to these things. And I think that I realized that I had maybe slightly different views than a lot of people did. And it, it led me to rather than just say, I'm going to sit here and listen to what the teacher has to say and say, I either agree or disagree, but really want to dig in and understand why we believe the things that we believed. And I think I kind of across every set of issues realized that there's just an enormous quantity of data and theology and history and context behind each of these things. And it's just a world that I was really excited to dig into. That's not necessarily always, you know, encouraged, I would say. Uh, yeah, because you could go Google online and there's so many different things you could find. So how are you able to be at church and in this kind of insular culture that only told you these limited things. And then you were also at the same time exposed to the internet, in your room, type in whatever you wanted, and there's a plethora of ideas. How did you find a balance that would still allow you to grow in your faith? To be honest, like living in rural America, I didn't have great internet access until college. You know, we had a 56K modem that had dial up connection. And so there wasn't really like a great option for saying, I'm interested in this topic. I'm going to spend the next two hours on the internet because, you know, you blocked up the phone line. Nobody else could use it. It was super slow. It was really unwieldy. And so I think for me, it was mostly just exploration through the scripture and through conversations. So that was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think so. Like avoiding the perils of the internet from an early age. I mean, it really wasn't until college that having, you know, the entire corpus of human knowledge at my fingertips was a thing that was really possible. But how would you say you were able to pull stronger in your faith? Because a lot of people in college, they could wander away 
think it was a pretty unique perspective, actually, given that I went to Georgetown, which is a Roman Catholic institution, you know, one of the oldest colleges in the United States, founded by a Jesuit priest. And over the years, obviously, like Georgetown is known a lot more for their education than they're known for the rootedness in their religious tradition. It was interesting insofar as, you know, I came in as a Christian, but as a minority Christian. And then the only Protestant service they had was Episcopal. And so there wasn't even an option for me to go to evangelical Christian church on campus. And so I think I was always in this position in conversations, whether it was Catholic conversations or interreligious dialogue conversations, which were incredibly common in my field of study. You know, I was kind of an outsider in many ways. And that meant that I needed to have a perspective. (laughs) And so I was always like, I've got to come to my own conclusion about whatever the specific question was. Would you say you came out of it more of a Christian believer? Yeah, for sure. I remember the class at Georgetown that every freshman was required to take. And it seemed like the purpose of the class was to like dismantle the way that you think about the world. It was kind of commonly known as the class that basically took all of these cultural Catholic kids and challenged all the beliefs that they had and forced them to reconcile with who they are as people. And I think what ended up happening over time is that you go to a school where the the real focus is on interreligious dialogue and international affairs and a lot of other kind of like culturally progressive ideas that kids came in as Catholic and then they came out as something else entirely. And I think that it was really important for me to be authentic and to be true to my identity and also be true to my convictions and being surrounded by people and educators and fellow students that were constantly challenging that paradigm. It forced me to either get very serious or lose my faith. And I chose to get very serious. Trey Stevens is someone who's been able to climb the corporate ladder, pivot into the highly sought after venture capital industry and start the next big unicorn in defense technology. And at the same time, he's grappled with his faith and kept it pivotal to who he is and what he does. And so I had to ask Trey what encouragement he could give to those struggling with their faith in the midst of figuring out their career. And this is what he had to say. Martin Luther does a really good job on this, actually. He basically says that like, even in the middle of the day, has a vocation. The, the people that are benefiting from putting that glass of milk on the table, we're, we're all connected in this world. You know, that means that your vocation, whether you are a computer scientist or a general or a farmer or a dentist, it, it doesn't matter. Like, vocation is sacred and God means that. You know, people will say that God put us in the garden and then we send and then, like, work with our punishment. That's actually not the order. Like, the chronology of that is messed up. Like, God put us in the garden and he said, go to work, work with the garden. And then said happened. And his intention for humanity was always for us to work and to create. God is the creator. And in being called into his image, we are called into co-creation. Like he is saying, if you are to be like me, if you're imitating me, the way to imitate me is by building, by making things with your hands or your brains or whatever. And so I think that's like the call is that rather than getting obsessed with like Am I performing? Am I like achieving the whatever it is that I want to achieve from that my ambition tells me that I should achieve? We should just be realizing that like it doesn't matter what we're doing. We are participating in God's call and that He wants us to do it well. It doesn't matter what we're doing, it doesn't matter if we're nursing people or whatever, but like 
we are going to be noticed for the quality of our work and the ethical way that we go about it. And so find your passions, absolutely. That is important. It's important to your happiness. But as far as contributing to God's kingdom, like we can do that, whatever it is that we're doing. I would just encourage people to have an eschatological, a forward-looking theology rather than a chronological or backwards-looking theology. We can make this world a better place. And in fact, I would say that we're called to make this world a better place. Hope we leave you encouraged to keep doing what you're doing, that whatever it is, you can do it wholeheartedly. Perhaps you can also share this with a friend. Thanks for listening to the bonus content on Trey Stevens, where we got into some more details about his career steps and specifics about his faith. While we don't have all the answers here at Faith Collides, we would like to hear from you if you like us to get into any stories on how your work career, and business can intersect with the Christian faith. Leave us a message on our website, faithcollides.com, or you can even leave us a voice message from Anchor. Hope you have a blessed day. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by Shina Lee, audio mixing by Joshua Huang and Martin Garcia.